At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Assembly Required, Building a Case for Church, where we'll see what the Psalms teach us about a life of faith lived in community. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodside. We're so glad you're here to, to worship with us as we go to God's Word. Um, thank you. I'm glad you guys all braved the, the rainy weather outside and you're here today to, to lift your praise to the Lord. I'm uh, so glad to see all your faces. Our scripture for today is going to be Psalm 145. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, um, turn to Psalm 145. Um, first, though, if, uh, if, if you guys are unfamiliar with who I am, uh, that's totally cool. My name is uh, Mike Rettler. I serve as the associate pastor here at Woodside Plymouth. I've been here for about a little over uh, three years. I have my wife, Kate, um, have been here for that same time. And uh, we love serving here. We love uh, being here. Pastor Jeremy, his uh, wife, Stephanie, and his kids, uh, Ethan and Allison, um, are on vacation, a much-deserved vacation. They are in the Rocky Mountains right now, enjoying, enjoying the beautiful the weather and the beautiful scenery there. Please be praying for them for just refreshment and a chance to get away and, and recuperate and be refreshed in the Lord. So please be praying for them as they return back in, in just a couple weeks. Uh, so if you could stand me, stand with me, uh, we're going to read from Psalm 145. You kind of got the Cliff Notes version on that video, but I'm going to read the whole psalm for us as we go into God's word. This is what Psalm 145 says. It says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He who hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but are all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of God for us today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, you've chosen to reveal yourself in your holy word, and we're so grateful. For otherwise, we would be deceived, and we would think you are someone that you are not. We thank you for the truth of your word that helps realign our hearts to the truth of who you are. Lord, we're so grateful for this time. We ask that your Holy Spirit would make his presence known among us today. 
that your Holy Spirit would have uh, do the work that he's come here to do in our midst, to encourage us, to challenge us, to point us back to Jesus, to point us to your truth this morning. May we be encouraged, may you be glorified, and may we be built up and sent out for your glory. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm sure you could relate, but I feel like oftentimes life feels like a roller coaster ride. The ups, the downs, life ebbs and it flows. Life is not constant. There's, there's busy times. There's times for rest. There's sad times. There's time for great joy. There's even seasons like right now that none of us have ever experienced before. We're in the middle of a strange season. The Bible is very clear that there are seasons in life. Ecclesiastes 3 is very famous for pointing this out. It says this in Ecclesiastes 3, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So there's all these seasons in life. But the question God's word is going to address for us today is whether or not all things have a season. Do all things have an on season and an off season, for example? Do the commands of uh, God to love God and love others, for example, do those have an on season and an off season? I think we'd all agree we, we are to obey those at all times and to desire and seek those things at all times. Or the question that gets closer to our topic for today does God only desire our praise in certain circumstances, on certain occasions? Is it just for Sunday morning? Is it just when things are going well? I think many of us would see that our praise is more, uh, more readily given when things are going well in our lives. But what about when things aren't going well? If you're like me, I think subconsciously we withhold our praise when things aren't going the way we desire. Maybe you haven't experienced this, but I have. I, I pray I don't actively do this, but subconsciously, I think when my life isn't going the way I desire it to, my heart like throws a mini temper tantrum. Like my life isn't perfect, therefore I'm going to be cold towards God and withhold the praise that I know he's worthy of. Maybe that's you. Maybe I know it's me. That is textbook doubting of God's goodness towards us. Doubting his character, really. I see it in my own life. The problem is this. It's when we are young, we have this pre-wired notion of who God is. Maybe it's because of our fallen nature. Maybe it's because of the people, the fallen people that we see around us, and we put those attributes upon God. But we are hardwired from the beginning to have a false view of who God is. Our view of him is not even close. We might view him as ruthless, withdrawn, disappointed in us. But after we come to Christ and we begin taking God at his word, we begin having our hearts rewired. We're beginning to see how we've been thinking about him falsely and going back to the truth and seeing about how we've been thinking of him falsely and this is how we need to actually think of him. We're digging up dark thoughts of who God is, his character, his false thoughts about his character and replacing them with the truth of God's word. That's what we do. We gradually uproot lies in our lives that we've been believing about him, and we gradually replace them with truth and good thoughts towards God. 
An author, uh, Dane Ortland, puts it like this in his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly. If you have a chance to buy it, I would highly recommend it. It's such a good book. Uh, he says this, The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. And then he makes a really good point. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and also keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. I think that sums up me pretty well um, and my, my notion to sin. It's when I don't believe God is good and I seek goodness somewhere else. Maybe you can relate. If we want our view of God to not be a roller coaster ride, if we want our praise of him to be constant out of our mouths and out of our hearts, we need to do some of this excavating that Ortland talks about in his book. And that's exactly what we're going to do today as we continue on in our series through the book of Psalms called Assembly Required. We're looking at the importance of assembling and gathering together to worship, to be in song together, to pray together, to, to confess together, to be in the word together. Now, obviously, there's grace for those, especially in this time, that have health concerns and are staying at home. And for you that are watching at home, we're so glad that you're with us. But we're looking at the question about why is gathering important at all? Like, why is it a big deal? So last week, Pastor Jeremy walked us through Psalm 51 and took us to the Psalm of Confession. And this is why we have those um, elements of confession in our worship services. God's grace should lead us to repentance. And then repentance to what we're going to talk about today, which is worship. When we worship, when we repent and confess our sin and turn back to God, we, the thing that comes out of our heart is worship. So today we're in Psalm 145, as I said. This is the last of the Psalms of David. It's actually nicknamed the crown jewel of praise because it's such a good praise hymn. It's such a good hymn. And I think uh, you're going to agree. It's, it starts like this in verses 1 and 2. It says this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. So what is David saying he wants to do? He wants to praise. He wants to extol. He wants to bless the name of God. How often does he want to do that? He wants to do it every day, probably multiple times a day. He doesn't want to neglect praising God. How long does he want to do this for? Forever and ever. David wants to do this for all eternity. So there, there are on seasons and off seasons for some things in our life, but there's one thing that is not included in that list. Every season, every day, God is to be praised. So in the midst of all those seasons Ecclesiastes mentioned, being born, dying, planting, harvesting, mourning, dancing, keeping and casting away, weeping and laughing, God's praise should be constantly in our hearts and on our lips. I think we could all admit that we need a little help with that. None of us praise the Lord to the level at which he is worthy of. So we need help digging out some of our false thoughts of God, some of those dark thoughts of who God is that we're pre-wired with. And we're, to do that, we're going to answer three questions today. What happens when we praise God? Why is God to be praised? And how? Do we praise God? So I want to start with the first question. 
what happens when we praise God. This one's going to be a lot quicker than the other ones. Uh, first, praise centers our focus. It centers our focus. When we set our attention on the greatness and goodness of God, we are overwhelmed by the kind of God that he is. We're overwhelmed by his goodness. Attention is diverted away from ourselves and our, our circumstances and onto the place where it should be, onto Christ. Praise gives us perspective. Recognizing the bigness, goodness, and faithfulness of God puts everything else in perspective. If you want victory in your life, it really starts with worshiping. It starts with worshiping. Praise gives us hope. The psalm that we're in today unfolds the different ways that God supplies and satisfies. Our worship of him reminds us of that and makes us grateful. I'm reminded when I think about these things that um, worship does in our lives, it reminds me of uh, Matthew 14 when Jesus is walking on the water. His disciples are in the boat. They see him. Peter sees him. He's like, man, that looks like fun. So uh, Peter steps out of the boat and starts walking towards Jesus. It starts off going pretty well. He's walking towards Jesus on the water. Um, And then what happens? He lowers his gaze. He starts looking at the things around him, his circumstances, namely the the wind and the waves that are crashing around him, trying to sink him. He takes his his gaze off of Christ and towards his circumstances. And what happens? He starts to sink. He starts to sink and he calls out for Christ's help. It is the exact same for us. Too often our eyes are on our circumstances and not on Christ. I have this financial concern over here. I have this relational conflict over here. I have these hopes and these dreams that I think God is calling me to, and I'm not there yet. I'm unfulfilled in that area. Praising God helps move our gaze above our circumstances. We're not looking around us. We're looking above us, towards the only one that has the ability to actually change them and the only one who's not tossed to and fro by the turbulence of this world. So to dig out some of these dark thoughts of God that we harbor in our hearts, we want to answer three questions. We just looked at what happens when we praise God. Let's continue with the second question. Why is God to be praised? Now this is going to be the meat of the message because this this psalm is filled with motives to praise God. The reasons are everywhere. Now it's, it's my hope that as we go through some of these things that you would just even take them slowly and contemplate them and allow your heart to be filled with praise after realizing who this God is that we serve. Um, I'd, I'd pray that our hearts are naturally drawn towards praise as we go through this. Not because I say so, but because this God is so incredible that we serve. I pray that your heart is warmed as we go through this. So I'm going to start with uh, verses 13 to 20 where we see a theme. Now, as I read this, keep an eye out for how God uses his power. He's got all this power. How does he use it? I think you're going to see that he uses it to faithfully, he uses it to faithfully serve the good of his creation. Uses it for the the good of his creation. So starting in verse 13, let's read through this. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give give them food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. 
The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Just look at this list. God has all the power in the world. Anyone that has any kind of power has been given to them by God. God has all the power in the universe. How does he use it? He could use it as a tyrant if he so chose, but he doesn't. He uses it for the good of his creation. I'm going to go through some of these verses real quickly and just point out a few things. Verse 13, our God is everlasting. Kingdoms and nations rise and fall, but our God has no beginning and has no end. He is a source of stability for us. Verse 14, our God is faithful. Our God lifts up the broken. Our God upholds the humble. He welcomes your weakness and bears up your wounds with greater care than we've ever experienced and that we could ever imagine. Verse 15, our God supplies. Verse 16, our God is generous. Our God satisfies the needs and desires of even all of your pets, all the animals you've ever seen are met by his good hand. Your own physical, spiritual, and emotional needs all met in him. The desires of your heart are satisfied in Christ. Our God is righteous, verse 17, perfect in morality, and yet totally contrary to people who know that they are righteous, our God is perfectly kind, perfectly loving, perfectly humble. Verse 18, our God is near. Our God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. Verse 19, our God is listening. He sees your tears that no one else heard last night. And he cares more deeply than anyone ever could. Our God saves. Verse 20, our God is a protector. He's never not had someone's back that trusted him. Our God does what is right. He's just. This is the God of the Bible. Is this the God that we struggle to praise? Or is it another God that's far more worldly and boring that we've made up in our own minds? Or maybe that's pre-wired in our own hearts. This is why we need to keep uprooting these dark and false thoughts of who God is. I want to go on to verses 8 and 9 where we see a passage that I think is breathtaking. Verses 8 and 9 says this, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So this God that we worship is not, as we may think, resentful and irritable. He's not spiteful and mean. He's not hateful and rude. This may be what our hearts are predisposed to think of him, but that is not who he is. He is not like the men and women that we know. This verse tells us what he's truly like. He is gracious. He gives good things to us even when we don't deserve it. He is merciful. He withholds punishment even when we've earned it. He's slow to anger. He doesn't lash out quickly even when we push him and try him time and time and time again. It says he is abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't just have a little bit of love for us. I think we oftentimes get sucked into the lie that he just tolerates us and has a small bit of love for us, just enough to get us through life and maybe enough to get us into his kingdom in eternal life. It says no. It says he abounds in steadfast love. 
If his steadfast love were in a cup, it would be filled to the brim and overflowing with his love for you. He is good to all. There is nobody or no thing that he has treated wrongly or unfairly ever. He is quick to mercy and slow to punishment. I love these verses. And these verses are actually uh, a near direct quote from Exodus 34, from earlier in our, in our Bible. So understand the, let's understand the context of Exodus 34. What's happening? The nation of Israel has just been delivered out of Egypt through great signs and wonders, all the, the plagues and all that. They walk through the Red Sea. They're given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, uh, on the stone tablets. God has clearly chosen them. God is clearly with them and loves them. And what do they do in response? They make a golden calf out of gold and they worship it. They worship it and say, this is the God who delivered us from Egypt. They, they neglect the true God and they worship a God of their own making. So my question is, how does God respond to this? How does he respond? Like, my thought is God's going to take them to the woodshed and do something drastic, annihilate them even for their tremendous sin against him. But what does he do? In Exodus 34, we see this is what he says about himself because he wants to make it very clear to the people of Israel, this is who I am. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is how he responds to the Israelites' sin by this statement about himself. Total, undeserved grace is what he gives them. Here's what Dane Ortland, that same author I mentioned earlier, says about these few verses in Exodus. He says, Our deepest instincts expect him to be thundering, gavel-swinging, judgment-relishing. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. And then Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks. The bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. That is such an encouraging thought to me. I'm blown away by that when I think about my sin against God and this is how he feels towards us. And later, Ortland mentions the quality of God being slow to anger. He helps clarify this really, really well. He says, The Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. Why is that? It's because his anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think that divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, ready to pounce on us, but, and divine mercy is slow to build. But it's actually just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. This is why we need to keep digging out our false and dark thoughts of who God is because we so easily forget these things about who God truly is because many of them are wrong and these false thoughts of God hinder us from worshiping. They hinder us from worshiping the true God of the Bible. So this heart of God, his, to be gracious, to be merciful, to be slow to anger and steadfast in love, is shown most clearly in God sending his son Jesus to us. We see his mercy and grace spring forth and start walking around this earth with flesh on when Jesus comes to live with us. We can see physically how Jesus responds to ridicule and hatred, 
our hearts are moved by how he gently cares for the outcast and those in society who were seen as being unredeemable. We see his slowness to anger. God would have been totally justified to wipe out all humans the moment the first one of us sinned in Adam and Eve. Totally justified. He would have been totally justified to wipe out all of the Israelites as they sinned against him time and time and time again and even killed his prophets that he sent to them for their good. But he doesn't. He goes even further to show mercy and grace and sends his own son. Jesus doesn't just come to earth, share a message, and then head back to the comfort of heaven. He stays and lives among us for 30 years. He teaches us the way of God. He gets falsely accused, condemned, and hung to die on a cross. And he still doesn't lash out in anger. He prays for those who are killing him. This is slowness to anger in its most incredible form. And now that Christ has risen from the grave and is interceding for us, he is still all the more gracious and merciful towards us. He doesn't strike us down the moment we sin. Praise the Lord, otherwise none of us would be here. (laughs) He desires us to repent and turn to him. He gives the the non-believer time to come to a saving knowledge of who he is, to surrender to Jesus, to repent of their sins and to fall at his feet. He gives the believer time to realize again that their their sin has led them astray and that there's a better way of life towards God's grace and goodness after we repent and come to his grace. I think a summary for our reasons why God is to be praised can be found in verse 3. It says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. He is worthy of our praise. He is beyond the comprehension of the human mind. We've been given this great gift of God's word to us that we can read and understand and grow in, but he's still beyond our comprehension. Even in eternity, we will not know every mystery of who God is. He is that complex and good and beyond our comprehension. This gospel that we have heard is is mind-blowing. I mean, how can a God so just and so righteous be so merciful and gracious to a sinner like me? He can because God himself took on flesh and took our place. Jesus stood and took on all of the wrath, all of the, the anger that was being slowly kindled that was poured out on Jesus so that all the mercy the grace, the patient and steadfast love can be poured out on me and on you. Is this the God that you worship? Is it the God that we worship? If not, I can totally understand why we are lacking in praise. We aren't focusing upon a praiseworthy God. But the God of the Bible is more than worthy of our praise. So I pray your hearts are warmed this morning by the truths about who God is and that it gives you a desire to worship. I pray that all of us continue to do the the lifelong work of digging up these falsehoods that we've clung to about who God is, these dark thoughts of who God is, and replacing them with the good thoughts about who God is, the true thoughts from his word. We worship God because he loves the unlovable, me and you. So we're digging out these false, these false dark thoughts of God that we harbor in our hearts. We're, we're working on three questions. We've looked at what happens when we praise God. 
We've looked at why is God to be praised. So I want to conclude with our last question. How do we praise God? How do we praise him? You know, we see that now we should praise him, but how? How do we do that? Well, the, the scriptures have good examples for how we do that as well. This psalm is really helpful in guiding our worship. How does, what does it look like? So I want to ch- check out a couple more passages from this psalm, uh, verses 4 to 7, and then we're going to jump to verses 10 to 12. I want you to be watching for all the different kinds of speech that David mentions. All these different kinds of speech. So let me, let me read, starting in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And then down to verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Do you notice all the forms of speech that David mentions? I don't know if he's got a thesaurus on hand or what, but his vocabulary has got to be exhausted about ways to say something. I mean, he mentions extol, bless, praise, commend, declare, meditate, speak, pour forth, sing aloud, give thanks. All these are words that describe how we ought to praise God. Basically, this worship begins in our hearts, but it must move to our lips. It needs to move to our lips. The Holy Spirit warms our hearts and increases our affections towards God as we are encouraged by truths about Christ. And as we put aside our false dark thoughts about God and his character and take up the truth of his goodness, we can't help but share it. We can't help but share it. Back to God in prayer, back to God in praise and singing, and then sharing it with other people that desperately need to hear about the goodness and the truth of who this God is. The best kind of evangelism The best kind of evangelism is not one that comes from guilt. If I were to come up here and share to myself and to all of you that, you know, we just need to share the gospel more and just try to guilt you into sharing the gospel more, that is not a good way of of, um, encouraging evangelism. The best kind of evangelism is one that comes from the heart, one where you can't help but share with people because of the beauty and the majesty and grace and mercy of the God who you are saved by and the one that you are learning more about day by day as you go to his truth. We share with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers of this God who is prone to mercy and grace towards us and slow to anger towards sinful people like us. If every Christian stopped sharing the goodness of God, there would be no Christian faith within one generation. And we see an encouragement in verse 4 to commend God's mighty works and acts to that next generation. We're, we're encouraged again, as we are throughout Scripture, to share it with people younger than us. Share it with people older than you too, but younger than us. Pass on the goodness and truth of who God is. This is more than just a call to parents. This is a call to all of us. For, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, and we are the village as the church. Kids ministry, student ministry, mentorships, um, getting into Bible studies with younger folks, pointing them to God's truth, All these are great ways to equip the next generation with the gospel. 
This praise needs to be in our hearts, but it needs to result in our words. It needs to be on our lips. The way this psalm concludes also shows us how we ought to praise God. It concludes like this in verse 21. It says, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So sharing what God has done in our hearts, uprooting these dark, false thoughts about him, and replacing them with accurate, heartwarming truth about who his, char- his character is so important because worship is not just an individual thing. We see here that David desires not just his own mouth to declare God's praise, but all flesh to bless God. He desires all flesh to sing God's praises. This is why gathering together to sing God's praises is so important. When we worship alongside five, ten, a hundred, maybe even a thousand people, it is a taste of heaven when all flesh will worship God. And not just not just uh, flesh. Um, there's an interesting story when Jesus is on the donkey on his way into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, when he actually says, if all the people are silent, even the rocks are going to shout for my glory. They're going to praise my name because I am that worthy. So it begins with personal praise, but it's clear now that nothing less than the praise of every creature is sufficient for a God as glorious and as good as ours. The praise of God is to be widespread until every tribe, tongue, and nation have been reached with the gospel. The Great Commission has not been completed and we are still to bring the mission forward. Our praise of God is not just to be widespread, but it's to be enduring. The phrase forever and ever shows up in this this psalm several times. Our praise is not just for Sundays. It's not just for seasons of life when things seem to be going pretty well or when it's convenient. It isn't even for this life in general. It's for eternity, forever and ever. When Jesus comes to renew this earth and set up his eternal rule over all things, when all things are going to be made right, we will love nothing more than to praise him for all eternity. Through our words, through our songs, through our culture, through our love for him and our love for one another, that's what our praise is going to look like. So what does our worship look like lately? Maybe for you, for your family, for us as a church. Are we believing dark, false thoughts about who God is? Allow his word to uproot them and replace them with the truth of his goodness. Are we keeping our mouth sealed about the goodness of God? Allow these mind-blowing truths about his goodness and his grace to drive you out on, in mission in a desire for all creatures to join you in singing God's praises. So we, we see that the scripture is clear. There are different seasons in life. There's seasons of rest, seasons of work. There's seasons of difficult relationships. There's seasons of harmony. There's seasons of health, seasons of sickness. But it's through all of these seasons because of God's goodness, grace, mercy, and steadfast love shown towards us through Jesus Christ's work on the cross, we can say that every season, every day, God is to be praised. So let's fill our hearts with his truth that causes love and the truth about God's goodness to bubble up within us and overflow from us onto those around us. That is worship. That is praise. 
as we continue worshiping together today, uh, we want to lift up God's praise in a way that is always done with other believers. It's always done in the assembly. Today we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a symbol to help us remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to remember the goodness of God and his mercy and grace towards us because we so easily forget and so easily go back to those dark, false thoughts about who God is. We eat bread and drink juice as symbols of Jesus' broken body and shed blood that he gave for us on the cross as he died in our place. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you are a believer if you desire to follow him for the rest of your days and give him praise for all eternity, the Lord's Supper is for you. The scriptures tell us that actually as we take the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We are praising him as we take the Lord's Supper together. If you're not a believer in Christ, I'd ask that you don't take the Lord's Supper with us. You're not missing out on some kind of blessing. It's a symbol. The true blessing is in Christ. I ask that you would consider your sins, repent and turn to him, surrender to him, fall at his feet today. May today be a day of new beginnings for you. So now when you, you grabbed your seats, there were safely wrapped uh, communion elements on your seats. Um, we're going to be using those in just a moment. If you are, have a gluten intolerance, there is um, gluten-free crackers on the half wall of the, of the, the sound booth back there. Um, they're a little tricky to open, um, but uh, there's two layers to them. But before we take the Lord's Supper together, I want to take a moment and just pray. Just go to the Lord in prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of how your praise has been lacking. Maybe how your praise has been inaccurate. Your, your thoughts of him have been wrong. Allow the Spirit, Holy Spirit to show those dark thoughts or lies about God that you have bought into over the last few months. Allow the Holy Spirit to show you these things. Ask for forgiveness. Ask him to uproot these lies and replace them with the truth of his goodness, his mind-blowing goodness that we've been shown today. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and gets you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.